Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I interviewed Dr. Christina Proenza Coles about her new book, American Founders, How People of African Descent Establish Freedom in the New World. And American Founders is published by our New South Books Best Friends, and they are based out of Montgomery, Alabama. And also, to let the listeners know, this is also the first podcast in a multi-podcast series of HBCU faculty and formal faculty, along with former students of HBCUs, about their new books in in the field of African-American studies. And, you know, y'all know, after listening to me for almost 50 episodes, that I am an HBCU guy and I love them. So why not feature the books of those who have either taught at or are presently teaching at HBCUs and also have been educated at HBCUs as well? And so without further ado, let's open the show. Alrighty, how are you doing, Dr. Christina Peranza Coles? How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And um, you know, thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Uh reading your book. I finished it last night. It was exceptional. And I just was so, so excited being able to wake up and say, I'm interviewing you for this book. It always gives me a a, a big uh a big smile, a big cheese, like I'm getting ready for for a school picture day. Well, I feel the same way because I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and really enjoyed um, the authors you've interviewed and enjoyed the questions and the conversations um, you guys have inspired. Most definitely. And you're now part of that that esteemed group. And so uh, before we get too much further, can you talk to us about uh, what brought you to this book? Well, um, speaking of HBCUs, what brought me to the book was my experience um, teaching at Virginia State University um, from like 2004 to 2011. And I had a a core set of courses that I taught every single semester. I taught world history to 1500. I taught U.S. history to 1865. I taught Latin American history. And then um, my specialty, which they hired me for, was Atlantic world history, which, as you know, kind of ties all the Americas together, looking at West Africa and Europe as well, to look at new world history. And so every semester, as I prepare for these classes, and I'd update the syllabi, and I might have summer projects, um, summer research you know, institutes and stuff, um, I kept coming across men and women of African descent who had done extraordinary things in, in the course of American history. Um, in North America, but also in the Caribbean and Latin America. I kept finding men and women who had fought in independence wars, who had led revolutions, um, men and women who had started newspapers, founded schools, um, you know, gone to legislatures to petition for, for, for rights. And these men and women, they, they fundamentally, cumulatively, they just changed my understanding of American history. They changed my understanding of American democracy, and they changed my understanding of how freedom um, was established in, in the new world. And so I wanted to put all of these stories together in one volume, and that's what became American Founders. And, and with that, too, um, just so that we can set the uh, particular stage and set the scene for, for our readers who may not have picked up the book, but clearly based upon this interview and, and the other ones in the in the series, you're going to pick this book up. I know you listeners will. Um, can you talk to us about the particular uh, time frame that you're that you're beginning your your book at, and also any any particular terms uh, like Afro American that you use a lot in the text, so that you know if people are not necessarily 
knowledgeable about the usage of it in this particular context that they will know? Well, I want to, I mean, I have to admit, like I went really broad. I went really big. Um, this is the kind of thing that, you know, as, as you know, like, you know, as your dissertation advisor really wants you to focus on something specific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to go as broad as possible. So the book literally begins with the beginning of human history and the first civilization in ancient Sumer, where 50% of the population was enslaved, um, just to establish the fact that, you know, slavery has, is an is a institution that has been part of every civilization since the beginning of of human you know, history, um, but that in the ancient and medieval period, slavery had nothing to do with race. So I wanted to give that kind of backstory. And then the, the main kind of meat of the chapters um, starts with, I mean, one thing I argue is that African-American history begins at the same moment as European-American history, because there are people of African descent on Columbus's ships. So it starts with um, the the 16th century, and that chapter is called, um, refers to Afro-American conquistadors. Um, and the next chapter talks about 17th century Afro-American colonials. And these are individuals who are helping to defend and settle and develop all of the New World um, colonies. Um, and then the next chapter is the uh, 18th century Afro-American revolutionaries, because, of course, the 17th, 1700s is the time of these independence wars um, throughout the Americas. And we t- typically think of the um, American, French, Haitian revolutions, as well as the Latin American um, revolutions for independence. But I also argue in this chapter that there are people of African descent who are instigating independence movements that sort of precede and pave the way for those independence movements um, at the end of the 1700s. And so I argue that things like the Stono Revolt or Jamaica's Maroon Wars and Tacky's Rebellion um, are these sort of declarations of independence, if you will, that are destabilizing the colonial order that pave the way for these larger national revolutions in which people of African descent play significant roles. Um, then we go to the the long 19th century, which I had to break up um, after much, much hand-wringing. I had to break into two chapters because so much happens in the 18th century. Um, but that um, those chapters talk about Afro-American patriots and liberators and nationals as this crucial period of nation-building um, around the Americas. People of African descent play enormously important roles, establishing um, sort of the terms of citizenship and, you know, trying to put revolutionary ideals into practice. And then there's kind of a quicker 20th century chapter um, talking about Afro-American freedom fighters, because of course, you know, the, the um, you know, with emancipation, and the end of slavery, that does not mean freedom uh, and, and full citizenship in many parts of the Americas. So the last chapter looks at basically um, people of African descent who are advocating um, civil rights up until 1950. Because the idea is of the book is, um, you know, the way I learned history a million years ago was that African-American history began on 19th century plantations in the American South. And it was this sad, but, you know, aberrant history a long time ago that was, you know, kind of when it grits the grain of of nation building and democracy in U.S. history. And then African-Americans don't, you know, get to the stage of of politics onto the political stage until the 1950s in the civil rights movement. And what I found in doing this research was that people of African descent were advocating for rights um, and for citizenship and, you know, against slavery and for democracy beginning not in the 1950s, but in the 1500s. And and that particular context is great because, uh, you know, being from Florida, one of the things that I remember uh, growing up was that I didn't really see Florida 
as like a big historical place. Like I'm thinking about somewhere like Boston or New York or, you know, maybe even, you know, Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia. Uh, But it's a different kind of history. And specifically, I just didn't see myself in it. But then I, you know, then I went to through, you know, through FAMU and, and, and learned a lot about how, no, like, you know, Africans have been in Florida for a very long time. Um, and, and not just necessarily in, in, uh, St. Augustine either. And, uh, and your book, uh, was very interesting because it, it brought about, you know, I think one of the, your, one of the facts that you brought about is, you know, uh, there was a particular group in coastal Georgia that were in, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, that you talked about, uh, a, a group of Africans who, um, f- who rebelled in, um, coastal Georgia, was that, was that right? Yes. This is one of those things. Um, and, and, I, you know, knowing your interviews, you're probably going to get to methodology, um, before too long, but so I'll just say right now, like I did not do a ton of archival research for this book. I did a little tiny bit in Havana and I've done a little bit, um, in Virginia, but for this book was, it's a synthesis. I've built this on, you know, the backs of other scholars who have been documenting this history, you know, and African-American scholars who've been de- documenting this history since, you know, the 19th century. But this, what you're referring to is um, a settlement by a Spanish sugar planter named um, Ayon, who in 1526, he tried to establish a colony in what is today um, Georgia near the South Carolina border. And this is the kind of thing that was in a textbook. So when I was teaching at Virginia State, this was in a textbook. Um, and it was acknowledging that, you know, this we, what we know from the documents is that Ion set out um, with uh, from Hispaniola, from Dominican Republic, with 600 colonists um, and apparently an unspecified number of enslaved individuals, um, presumably from, you know, West, West Central Africa um, and some supplies. And that... This colony is beset with a ton of disasters. Ion dies, and um, before the 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 colonists go back to, um, to Dominican Republic, that the enslaved individuals mutiny and and flee and leave and settle with with the native population. So this is you know this is out there in textbooks. But then it occurred to me finally one day that means that people of African descent established the first permanent transatlantic settlement in what is today the United States in 1526. So this is, you know, over 80 years before Jamestown and and a a hundred years before the Mayflower, that the first permanent transatlantic settlers in the U.S. were not only people, you know, who were enslaved, they're self-liberated enslaved Americans. So that that kind of shift of focus um, of these facts that are kind of all around us, if you will, is kind of one of the things I enjoyed doing with the book. Um, to sort of shift the perspective a little bit, and and that leads me to you know just one of the the, the some of the themes I lay out in the beginning of the book, which is that um, you know, well, first of all, you know, there's this demographic sh- like fact that it's been you know that is right readily out there, but it, if you think about it, you know, it's it's kind of might cha- you know might change a person's perspective on American history. Before 1820, four times as many Africans came to the New World as Europeans. So that's well documented. It's in tons and tons of books. Um, it's, it's if you think about it, it means that before the first quarter of the 19th century, which, as you know, to a historian is like yesterday, the vast majority of Americans came to the New World as slaves. And, and to me, that's you know an important fact to sort of recognize um, our 
you know, our truer American history. And so from, from that idea, I came to the two themes. Number one, that um, in the, more, the majority of these individuals coming you know, across, obviously, the transatlantic passage, it's, it's, it's a forced migration. It's the biggest forced migration and demographic shift in human history. Um, so it's, it's through the slave trade. But the point is, is that, you know, individuals who are enslaved were still Americans, regardless of whether the state was acknowledging their citizenship or, or their rights. And they are shaping American history over and over again in multiple important ways, both in sort of day-to-day nation build, you know, build, settlement building, defense, um, economic development, but also these watershed events like the, as mentioned before, like the independence wars. People of African descent were instrumental to the American Revolution, to the American Civil War, to the wars for, for uh, independence in Latin America, in Cuba, in enormously important uh, you know, roles in, in those, those wars for independence. So... Um, to kind of shift the focus to, to recognize that enslaved people like played vital roles in all of American history in, um, in, you know, seminal moments, but also to recognize that anywhere you have enslaved populations, you also have free populations of color. So there's always, you know, communities of free people of color who are born free or, or purchase their own freedom or, or, or granted freedom for their military service or because of their familial relationships or, um, or petition legislatures, um, for their own freedom, and in many cases, liberate themselves by 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 running away, which is incredibly difficult, incredibly dangerous. But I was I was really stunned to see how common of an occurrence it was. Um, so there's an enormous history of free people of color who are pushing these these uh, historical moments um, forward at every turn as well. But then the third theme I want to I'll just uh, continue with that is many of the people that I was researching. It turned out had um, European ancestry, people who were enslaved. And people who are free, and it really sort of brought to the fore this idea that Americans are the descendants of slaves and slave owners, and both figuratively because we are all inheriting the economic, cultural, political landscape that that this you know the relationships between slaves and slave owners created, but also literally, like you know, demographically. Um, Many Americans um, are we are you know the, the descendants of slaves and slave owners. And I think that one of the other parts about your book that um, you had briefly mentioned that J word that in the year uh, two thousand and nineteen is important, and that's Jamestown. Um, and, and and not really necessarily Jamestown, but you know, uh, as, as folks who are from the area will clearly say, it's really Point Comfort uh, that the first. Um, uh, the first uh, captive Africans came into. Uh, so, you know, there's that part. But but specifically, you know, that's in the American imagination of Jamestown. So let's use it. Um, so how so 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 was your book in, in when you were, you know, conceiving uh, of this book and such an, and writing it and thinking about maybe published dates was 2019 and the 400th anniversary a part of your particular um, mindset when you were thinking about publishing the book or getting the book published? I wish I could say it was, but it, it wasn't. This is just, this is a labor of love I've been working on for, for, you know, over a decade. And this is, um, this, it was a sort of, it's a fortuitous confluence. Um, and I just actually was able to go to an event, um, at Jamestown, historic Jamestown, and to see Kathleen Brown, um, speaking about women in 17th century, uh, Virginia, which was super fascinating. Wow. But, um, but I, I will also say, like, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm very interested in this history of, of early Virginia, and there's this old and teeny tiny book called um, Mine Own Ground um, 
mm-hmm. that talks about these, you know, uh, you know, first Africans and uh, African Americans in early Virginia, so and bef- kind of before the hardening of of the laws of um, slavery and and race that, that are, are meant to sort of pull apart these interconnections between European indentured servants and you know people coming from who are being you know intercepted from the from the slave trade. Um, and so these individuals are like running away together and they're having kids together. And you can see the English, you know, lawmakers sort of wringing their hands of how, what, what, what do we do with these populations that are coming together? And then, of course, you know, the, the big event that Edmund Morgan wrote about the, you know, 1676 Bacon's Rebellion, where, you know, white indentured servants and um, Af- African servants and slaves take up arms together against the colonial state is becomes a sort of turning point for how are we going to settle these issues about, about labor and, and rights. Um, so certainly the history of, of Virginia has, has loomed large, but I mean, another interesting thing like that was talked about a lot in graduate school was um, how um, uh, Anthony Johnson um, is there's some, lots of records of him. He, he came to Virginia and I think, I think it's 1621. So it's a little bit after the first, the very first um, Africans coming to Jamestown and he marries a woman of African descent named Mary. They clearly have like, they have Anglo Christian names and they have, I think it's two sons. Um, they have, they have a family and they employ servants, white indentured servants and African indentured servants. And, um, or at least of African descent, because there's a servant named John Kazor, again, an English Christian name who's of African descent, who tries to make a contract with a white neighbor. And Anthony Johnson goes to court and the judge grants Anthony Johnson, John Kazor's service for life. And he also grants Anthony Johnson uh, the court fees that he's had to pay. Had to pay. He tells the neighbor he, he owes Johnson the court fees. And so again, this was something that was well established in colonial history, but then it kind of dawned on me as I was putting the book together, that would make Anthony Johnson, um, who might, what I understand we think was born in West Africa, among the first slave owners in American history, um, which really sort of um, I think sh- shows a person. Like I said, this is before the laws that are hardening about race and slavery that are, are they're going to get tighter and tighter in the late 1600s and the, certainly the 1700s. And as abolition becomes more of an issue, and as you know, it becomes more evident the incompatibility of slavery morally and practically with the Christian civic virtues of of the United States. The tighter those restrictions become, the more the more rights are taken away. But I think it's interesting to think about how, in the very beginning of American history, and so many times I saw in research for American founders, that um, these lines that we think of between um, black and white, and slave and free, and North and South, and urban and rural, and Anglo and Latin, um, are much fuzzier. Um, certainly, in the beginning of these of these stories, and they're complicated all the time by individuals who are who are participating in the development of the new world in, in different ways. And, and sticking to this uh, particular uh, American or the United States um, focus for, for a second. Um, so when you talk about Anthony Johnson, then the other, and, and John Kaser, the other case that typically comes up is the case of um, uh, John Punch as well. And, and his, connection too because um you know t- t- tell us about john punch tell us about john punch and his you know connection also to uh the, the story of slavery in-, in early virginia as i recall um 
the, in graduate school, people sort of try to debate. Of, so, you know, so when do you see this? When do you see this this hardening of these laws about slavery? And, and when is it becoming clear that slavery is going to be reserved as a permanent heritable condition for people of African descent, as opposed to this whole like you know mixed group of of, of unfree laborers that you see with? And it's a, you know, I'm sure as you know, the majority of people coming to the Virginia colony at this point are indentured servants from from uh, what is today Great Britain. So. You know, the majority of people, this, and this is, this is very different, by the way, what's happening in places like Cuba and Mexico and in the Caribbean, those are majority African populations. Peru are majority af- African populations that are outnumbering the European populations handily, mightily until, you know, 1700s, um, until 1810 in the case of, of, of Mexico. So Virginia is sort of a unique settler uh, society where there is a lot of um, unfree, a lot of Europeans, and a lot of those Europeans are unfree in the beginning, the beginning of that century. So this is one of the cases that's showing you that how this gets pulled apart. And so John Punch, in the early 1600s, runs away with two other servants, who I think one is a Scotsman and maybe one's Irish, and um, they are recaptured and they go in front of a judge, and the judge, in punishment, gives the two English servants um, extra additional years of service. Whereas John Punch is is um, punished with um, service for life, so scholars have pointed to this case of John Punch as the, sort of the beginnings of American slavery, if you will. Um, certainly, you know, it was this is a criminal case instead of a civic case, like in the case of John Kazor. So um, that was well established in graduate school, and then I stumbled across an article in um, Ancestry.com that uh, geneticist or that uh, I can't think of the word right now. Um, people who specialize in ancestry <laughs> um, had determined that uh, President Obama was a relative, a descendant of John Punch, um, that he's like his 13th great grandson or something like that. And the connection is not through his father, right? Who's from Kenya. The connection is through his mother, um, a white woman from Kansas. And so the looking through all the all the records, what the article was suggesting was that um, John Punch had a child with a, a European injured servant. Who, by the way, in the beginning of this period of time, they didn't even use words like white and black. They use like they would say European indentured servant. Um, they would use the word Christian was a stand-in for the word for white for a period of time as they're trying to figure out these racial categories. And so, um, at this point, John Punch John Punch's son is um, considered uh, white. But then also there's 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 like there's issues of you know is this person mixed race is this person white but the the um, ancestry.com article was arguing that it, it kind of bifurcates into two different families one is the punch family that eventually is completely passing as white in fact fighting for the Confederacy eventually um, you know beget uh, Obama's mother and then another side of the family the bunch family that moved to North Carolina are they continue to identify as mixed race and they marry um, people you know, who are considered of color and that they are the descent, they are the progenitors, if you will, of Ralph Bunch, who's the first African-American to win a Nobel prize in the 1950s. He's a diplomat. Um, so again, this idea that American history is really much more interconnected um, than we might think of with the sort of the binary categories we're given to think about, about uh, this history. It's, it's really much more, um, like I said, we're like literally and figuratively the descendants of slaves and slave owners. And in, in, in your study, um, 
you know, I, I was looking at your uh, bio and it looks and it tells that you hold a dual doctorate in sociology and history from the new school for uh, social for social research. And and your do that particular dual degree, right? Sociology and history. How does that and, and if, if it does rather, um, does your work in sociology and history inform your work in a, in a particular way as a result of that particular blend? Yes. I mean, I would say also just going back to the beginning, you know, I, I too am from Florida. I'm from South Florida. And as a kid, it was really visible to me, the sort of, um, the sort of complicated new world history of in South Florida, South Florida is, you know, a Southern town, or it certainly was when I was growing up in the seventies. Um, but it's also a very Caribbean town and the, and the neighborhood in which I grew up in South Florida was, was built by Bahamians in the late 1800s. And it's also a very Latin town. My, my dad, my dad's family emigrated from Cuba in the 1940s. And so um, I was spending some time in South Florida, spending a little bit of time in Cuba. I spent a little bit of time in the Bahamas. And then I would visit uh, my mom's um, parents in Savannah, Georgia. And I could sort of get a sense that all these all these cultures were connected, although they also seemed really different. Another thing, message I was getting as a kid in the 70s was, you know, schools and parents and people were saying, you know, we're a democracy, um, you know, racism is bad, and Martin Luther King has a dream. But then I could see, you know, structurally around me that it was not, you know, working out in the way that that I think people were hoping. Um, so I really was interested in how we got, why racism exists, why it's persisting, why, you know, social inequality and structure and, you know, structuring persists. And so that was my goal. And so that led me to study psychology as an undergrad in African-American history, but I also studied um you know, sociology and anthropology. Basically, I studied anything in graduate school that would speak to um, constructions of race. And that didn't have to be African-American history. That could be, I studied for a long time the constructions of, of whiteness. I studied um, different ways that, you know, basically issues of, of labor and sex, frankly, get played out through, you know, and power get played out through race and ethnicity. Um, so, I would so my point is I use academia sort of to answer a question about how did we get to where we are, but to more specifically to your point, I would say that sociology was wonderful in terms of having you know big broad structures and principles to think about and be able to look at patterns and um, and to look at um, sort of mechanisms, um, social mechanisms. But also, I um, I was actually trying to finish up graduate school and was teaching as an adjunct and Robin Blackburn. Um, was a visiting professor at the new school. And I sat in on his classes just to audit them because I liked his work so much. And um, I had been doing, like I said, I was doing a lot of work on um, whiteness in, in the United States and the construction of whiteness, particularly in colonial Virginia, um, with those early laws having to do with how mixed race kids are cl- classified, um, how labor um, gets sort of racialized and, and laws are going to separate um, workers and he said to me, you really have to get comparative. You really can't understand American history unless you have look outside of the United States. And so he inspired me to go back to school and to sit for the history exam and um, you know, pursue the history part of the degree. And so my dissertation ended up being a comparison of constructions of whiteness in colonial Virginia versus um, their constructions in colonial Cuba, which had a really different approach to classifying mixed-race children, had a really different apl- approach to solving their labor problems. Um, 
And I ended up arguing, therefore created very different conceptions of whiteness and very different conceptions, very different sort of approaches to, to race relations in, in the 19th century. Um, and so to me, you know, they're, they're all connected, like the sociology, the history, the psychology, um, they all sort of fit together. And in particular, you know, you talk about the whiteness study and then I look at the back of your book and you have um, you have love shown on the back of it by uh, Dr. David Rodiger at uh, at University of Kansas, you know, who obviously, you know, wrote the pioneering, uh, you know, important work, uh, The Wages of Whiteness, Race in the Making of the American Working Class. So, you know, I definitely see where, um, you know, your history and their whiteness studies came into play there. Um, but then also, um, I'm thinking about like, uh, you know, you're talking about themes before, and then I was sifting through your book just then and just kind of thinking about how did you come up with the particular, um, right? So, so you section your book off based upon, you know, century and then also uh, particular themes, but how did you, how did you come up with those themes? And also how did you come up with like, how did you try to set up, right? Because you, you talk about this book being a, a, a synthesis, a synthesis uh, 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 book, uh, and so, like, how did you come up with not only the particular themes, but also how far, um, not, not how far, but the particular events that you would try to build up in particular? Because you're talking about, you know, you know, from from Canada all the way down to, you know, Ar- Argentina. So, like, you're, you're covering a large amount of, of time frame and also a large amount of space and a lot of histories that are going on there. Well, I mean, it was to me, it felt kind of like a natural grouping. I was trying, like I said, I I'm, I owe a big debt of gratitude um, to these American founders and the people who, who the scholars who wrote about them. So I, you know, um, have an enormous secondary literature. That the, the the bibliography is something like thirty pages and change. Um, so I was sort of putting together all of these stories of um, people of African descent who had had, as I said, you know we're pushing um, the ideals of democracy forward. And to me, the chapters kind of naturally came from just regular sort of, you know, historiography in terms of, you know, what was happening in those centuries. So I'm trying to give, I'm trying to give the reader a a sense of how um, American history was progressing in general in terms of, you know, um, original like settlement and development and independence wars and, and nation building. Um, but to me, I think, I feel like we have history sort of backwards. And that, you know, when I, when I was first studying whiteness, I said to a sociology professor, we were doing urban um, ethnography. And I said, I want to study race. And he said, go to Harlem. And I said, I didn't tell you what race I, I was, I want to study. Um, so I feel like that was the kind of thinking that you say the word race and people think African-American, right? And so you talk about, if you want to um, talk about things like uh, democracy, rights, um, independence wars, patriotism, people tend not to think about people of African descent. But what I discovered was people, or you know, what I came to realize was, and I think other people are aware of this as well, it's precisely because people of African descent 
were denied rights, obviously as enslaved people, in a way that's you know that you can the, the level of, of the rights denial that's happening. Let's say as the tensions over slavery are growing before the Civil War, that that I mean the denial of like literacy of separating you know prepubescent children from families. I mean that's a that's a new level that's you know that you, you don't see in other slave societies in the modern world, and certainly not in the medieval and, and ancient periods. Not to say that slavery wasn't cruel in all these all of these regimes. It was, but there's a certain uh, there's a really um, almost uh, hysterical amount of repression you see among um, African-American slaves in the U.S. And also the denial of rights to free people of color is a new sort of innovation, if you will, of, of a slave society. Because in more traditional slave societies, once a person is free, they're free. Um, and I think that there's a lot of tension, um, certainly also in a democracy that's purporting to have to be egalitarian as opposed to be, being hierarchical which is one of the more traditional forms of society um, that's also creating the sort of like race-based bifurcation. But the point is that people of color were continuously denied rights. Um, and so that is the reason why they're constantly on the forefront of trying to protect them, of trying to establish them, for trying to solidify them. And so that's why you see these first position, petitions to the Massachusetts legislature um, saying, look, you know, from from Paul Cuffey saying, look, you know, we, we fought in the American Revolution, we pay taxes, we should we should be able to vote. And the Massachusetts legislature says in the late 1700s, yes, you should. Um, so if you, if you want to talk about the history of democracy and citizenship and rights and independence, I think you have to look towards, you know, what we consider African-American history. Although I argue this is a history of all Americans because we all benefit from these advances in, in, in democracy and in nation building. But if you want to, you know, there's all this stuff in the press these days about blackface and um, Jim Crow. And, and, you know, I want to say, like, if you want to study that stuff, you have to look to white Americans, right? Because that stuff is created by, for, and about, in my opinion, white Americans. It, it, it disproportionately disadvantages people of color. But those histories are about, um, you know, by and large, the history of discrimination, enslavement. Those are histories that are, in my opinion, of uh, white Americans, um, whereas the history of freedom and revolution is often the history of black Americans. Although I will say quickly, I don't mean to you know make two different binary monolithic um, communities, because I think that the communities are much more intertwined. But I do think that with all this talk of connection, um, that you know some Americans worked really hard to separate, to cleave Americans apart with a color line that was you know enforced through violence, through state-sanctioned violence, through vigilantes, through you know, social structures and, and economic structures and educational structures so that people, I think, worked very, very rigorously, especially in the wake of Reconstruction, um, to create, um, you know, to separate these communities. But I think despite all that violence and oppression, there's there, there are connections there as well. And, and with that, too, um, when, I, when, I, when I was reading your book, I thought a lot about um, you know, revolutionary struggles. I thought about going back to what you were talking about with uh, the comparison, because as you read the book uh, to the listeners who haven't read it yet, you'll 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 see like the the you'll see the comparisons kind of read out on the page when it comes to like the different independence struggles and such throughout the Americas, uh, which is I think an important detail. Uh, but but more so to something in a different way. What particular challenges, um, if any, were presented with trying to write a book like this? I mean, the biggest challenge is to end because the the you know 
there, the number of people that a person that you could include in this book is, is literally endless. And so finally the editor had to say, you know, no more. Cause I kept, I kept saying, wait a minute, I've just, I've, I've stumbled across the stories of like this really interesting woman or this really, and he'd say like, we're, we're done, you know, we're going to print, like we're not, we're not going to add any more individuals. So the, the sheer number of, of people is, and how, how to, how to, you know, choose who to include and who not to include. It was the hardest part. And also just make it not, um, I'll be honest with you in the beginning, it read like, an encyclopedia, it almost, you know, it was really, um, it was, it's, it's hard to get that many individuals into a, a narrative that is accessible. And it was important to me to make it accessible to um, people outside of academia and to make it, um, you know, something that you could sort of grasp in, in a few sittings. I do, I still think it's a book that you pick up and maybe put down, or maybe you, it sounds like you read it all the way through, <laughs> but I think yeah. for some people it's, um, you know, for not for non-specialists, I think it's it's you know they like to look at the pictures and read the captions. Um, and I have an Instagram feed that I'm really enjoying doing, where I get to take there's about 200 images of individuals that are on a mosaic of the co- of the cover of the book. And so with Instagram, which I just discovered, I get to I can put up the portrait of the individual and then write a caption explaining how the individual fits into larger. Um, historical events in you know um, and often like global currents of history and there I have no editor saying you have to wrap it up <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a really nice um, way to sort of go on and on about um, all these different individuals because there's so many um, it's hard to do any of them justice the other thing I would say that's really hard is that it's you know I'm not it, nothing's going into serious depth which is why there's a huge but you know bibliography and there's a huge there's a lot of citations and so um you know, readers can can go to those sources to go more in depth about these individuals or these events. Um, but that that was kind of the hardest thing is 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 getting rid of specifics to kind of go more broad. And and I thought about that too because, um, you know, like you said, there there are a lot of different books that that are cited here, and and uh, some of them I, that I wasn't even um, aware of either the title or even the author too. So, so, so it's always good. And so I always think about, um, and you talked about this before, about not only audience, but also who, how can this be used in classrooms? And so, um, you know, as, as far as textbooks, right? Because, um, you know, I remember reading, what was that James Lowen book, The Lies, you know, your teacher told or something about American history and, you know, re- thinking about that book and also how that book has you know, how many editions that book has been through since it has been, you know, since it was published, it's like, you know, on the level to a certain degree of like a Howard's in like people's history. And now you see people's history of or like books who are kind of using that kind of uh, structure. And um, do you see this book uh, being adopted as kind of like a textbook to a certain degree? Because I know you talked about it being encyclopedic, encyclopedic in earlier drafts of the book, but do you see this potentially being adopted by guy friends who are who are American history teachers or world history like AP kind of teachers? Do you see your book being um, very much in line with them as well? I mean, I, I did make it. I, want, I mean, I wanted a million things for this book. I wanted to gotcha. be like a first year, not a first year reader, but I, want, I wanted to be available to and accessible by certainly students. Um, you know, I want to, I want to do a coffee table book. I'd like to be able to sell it in the airport. But, um, so I do, I do, I feel evangelical about this idea that this is, you know, American history, a truer American history that I think, um, you know, it's, it relates to anyone who live, who lives here, you know, even the most recent immigrants, this, the world that we live in is shaped by this history. Um, and I think that in general, and 
you know, thinking about also the scholars that you've had on recently, you know, I think it's becoming more obvious to, 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 to scholars um, and, and non-specialists alike that, you know, this ubiquitous world of, of Americans of African descent shaping every aspect of American history is now becoming more visible. And so I think that I would love for this book, I would love for American founders to be used um, for students as a jumping off place. And like you were saying, then you could go into, you could go into depth with these other books, either in the bibliography or some of the, some of the scholars that you've had on recently who who touch on different aspects of American founders. Um, To me, I think it's, you know, I would love to see it in African-American history uh, departments, but also I would love to see it, like you were saying, in American history departments, in world history departments. Um, I see the whole, I see the whole future of the discipline of African-American history as moving more towards a center, if you will, as more and more scholars are recognizing that, I mean, as I said, with the demographics at the, at the beginning of the interview, you know, the majority of, of, of Americans coming to the new world um, were enslaved people. Um, and so I think that this is, you know, a history that, that uh, we all need to come to terms with. And, and a lot of it, there's, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I, was, I really enjoyed you had Stephanie Jones Rogers on recently talking about they were her property. You had Brooke Newman on talking about a dark inheritance. Um, in Jamaica, and you had Michael Schopner on talking about about Black Mariners being banned from Southern port cities. And to me, all all of those things are are wonderful in depth explorations of things that are touched on in American founders of this sort of um, intimacy of violence and violent intimacy that Americans have. That there's nothing about American history that wasn't touched by um, the history of slavery and struggles against it and its fallout that continues to plague us. And um, these are struggles that, that are shaped by people of African descent and people of European descent and other, other, you know, uh, nationalities as well. But um, I, I do see this as sort of a larger Americans grounding, a larger American story that you could sort of spin off into other smaller studies. And in the short time that we still have with you, um, I always like to periodically ask this question uh, about if you had the chance to, and obviously, you know, based upon, you know, the, the amount of individual photos that make up the, uh, the, 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 the opening page of your book or the, uh, the cover page rather, and, and all of the different illustrations that you have interspersed through the book, if you had to choose five people to sit down with, right? I think you might have heard this one. But if you had a chance to sit down with five people who are involved in your book and to have them for uh, for an evening, for an evening, a full course meal, drinks, whatever, whatever, whatever your heart desires. But you're getting for one night in a room, you can ask them any question uh, you know, that 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 you can, who would you have on and what would be the most you know, what would be the first question that you would ask one of them? Adam, you are killing me. I mean, I, now I'm flashing back to when I interviewed back when you still interviewed to go to undergraduate schools. And they asked me, who would you have as a dinner party? You could have five guests. And I was kind of flummoxed. And then I spent the rest <laughs> of like my 20s like revisiting what I, would, what, I would, what I would have answered. I wouldn't prepare for this question if you'd let me know because it's so hard. I mean, <laughs> normally I would say like whoever I just posted on Instagram is probably, you know, the person because I, 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 you know, get, you know, enamored of which individual I'm focusing on. But um, so really quickly, I'm actually looking at my Instagram page on my phone. And I mean, one person I would say would be Sarah Ramond, um, mm. who is from Boston and her brother, Charles uh, 
Ramond is, you know, very famous as well. And, and Frederick Douglass named his son after Charles Ramond. And um, they were, they were a very politically active family in Boston in the 1830s. And Charles Ramond was a very outspoken, not just abolitionist, but he spoke out, spoke, spoke out for women's rights as well. And I think it's super interesting that a lot of, um, you know, this, this is my point about people, you know, of African descent being on the forefront of these struggles for democracy and for, and for rights. I mean, many of these male um, anti-slavery a- a- activists were also recognized that, you know, women's rights were important as well. They recognized these connections between struggles for freedom at home, struggles for freedom abroad, struggles of freedom for people, uh, you know, across, across the continuum. But his sister, Sarah Mont, also was an outspoken um, anti-slavery speaker, but and women's rights advocate in her own right, and eventually goes to England, and then eventually becomes a physician and settles in Florence, um, in Italy, and becomes friends with Giuseppe Mazzini, who's a nationalist who's looking to help you know instigate nationalism and independence for the state of Italy, and they she befriends him and and assists him in that in that endeavor. So I think her stories would be particularly. Um, intriguing. There's also a sculptor, now I'm making me think of Italy, but there's a sculptor named Edmonia Lewis, um, who's from, I believe, New York State, and I think went to Oberlin and was a very promising, was a, an excellent um, sculptress. And she settles um, also in Italy and was visited um, by the, you know, the other premier artists um, and poets um, of, of the time. I think she led a, a really interesting Life. I mean, Antonio Maceo, I have to get in there with the, you know, my Cuban heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, and his mother, Maria Granjales, who were super advocates of, of Republican ideals. And I believe that they are of Haitian ancestry, which is the case for a lot of people in Eastern Cuba, um, which I think is such a fascinating history. I got to do this just really quickly, but I got to this one trip it's for, that we went from Havana to Santiago de Cuba on a bus. Um, and I got to do it with Gwendolyn Midlow Hall when wow. I first gotten up. Uh, I know, right? And then there, it, was, it was for historians and dancers. And then the other group was like 14 dancers from like Los Angeles and New York and myself and Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. <laughs> we like went through Cuba to look at the impact of Haitian culture on um, after the revolution on Cuba. And so we went to like a variety of like dance and religious ceremonies. And it was an extraordinary experience. Um, so Antonio, I say I would have to be thrown in with that as well. Um, just, it's just endless. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. I've posted today about you know, Louis Latimer, who invented carbon filament in the 1880s, you know, who, who was this incredible inventor who partnered with Thomas Edison and argued to, to like, not only help Thomas Edison in the laboratory, he argued to help defend Thomas Edison's patents in court in multiple languages against like European, you know, companies that were, that Edison thought was trying to steal his ideas. And Louis Latimer's parents were fugitive, self-emancipated slaves from Virginia who had gone to, to Boston in the 1830s. The Latimer and, case. Um, right, right. The Latimer case. So this Louis Latimer is their son, right? Who fought in the Civil War in, in the Navy. I mean, these stories are so fascinating and so interconnected um, and so important to like this the founding of this nation. And again, like not just in terms of, of rights, which the Latimers are very important for that, but in terms of literally the technology, the science, the healthcare. Um, literally shaped by by uh, these, you know, American founders. And and that that's so awesome. That's so awesome because you know I, I work here at the University of Delaware on the Color Conventions Project, and a lot of our um, a lot of people who are involved in the Color Conventions movement of the really from eighteen thirty all the way to nineteen hundred, many of them you know were a part of your story, and so it's really cool to see 
uh, because a lot of them, you know, personally were not only uh, involved in in uh, the overall movement for Black freedom, but also many of their children just went on and did, you know, similar things and, and in various fields. And so, uh, you know, your work did a lot to shine the light for them. So I definitely think that it's a, uh, it's an important, it's an important history that you've been able to tell from, you know, for, for, I guess what, six, 700 years, uh, pretty much worth of history, uh, packed into, uh, full pages of 362 uh, from, from start to finish. And so, um, you know, you, you've, you've done a great job and I'm so glad to see all the, all the publicity and all the praise for your book coming on. Um, and actually also for one of the people that blurbed your book, I interviewed her, um, Dr. Elizabeth Studer Pryor for her, um, for her work too. Uh, so for, for, for Colored yeah, Travelers. What a fantastic book. I love that book so very much. And I love her work. And I'm an enormous fan. And she's also doing some work right now um, that is going to be very interesting. And I can't wait to see. So I'm a huge fan of of Elizabeth Pryor's work. Yes. And, um, you know, so so you're, you're now part of the family. You're now part of the, the New Books in African American Studies family. Now that we have, uh, you know, gotten... Uh, to this particular book. And um, before we go, was there anything else that you think the readers and, and listener or the listeners and the readers, the future readers of the book uh, w- w- that you'd like for them to know about the book, uh, you know, as well that, that we might not have touched on throughout our time here today? Just as, like I said, there's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's of, of interest to academics and certainly built on, on a lot of scholarship by academics, but I really think of this as a, um, a call to all Americans to sort of rethink about our, our, our shared history, to rethink about what it means to, you know, to be American, what it means with, you know, what this democracy, how it came about and what freedom means. And I, I, I think it's an invitation for everyone of whatever background, whatever history to, you know, pull up a chair and, and be a part of this conversation. Cause, um, you know, like I said, there's a, there's a shared history that was torn apart by a lot of violence. But I think that going forward, we can recognize there's a lot more that, that we have in common than that divides us. There we go. And so once again, folks, we've had Dr. Christina Proenza Coles, who holds a dual doctorate in sociology and history from the New School for Social Research. And um, as, as you've heard today, uh, you know, her history, her personal history is uh, very intertwined. Um, not only with her personal life, but also as a lifelong uh, student of American culture and history in Miami, New York, Havana, and Charlottesville. And uh, she's also been an assistant professor of Atlantic world and African diaspora history at Virginia State University from 2004 to 2011. And so as a result of that too, right, that's why we brought her on as a the headliner, the the beginner of our particular series on uh, past and present HBCU faculty and also uh, former HBCU students to highlight their books and our HBCU uh, themed African American studies time frame, new books in African American studies uh, grouping of uh, of of, uh, of bookended books, right? So because we always try to get folks on here uh, from various institutions. 
But we also try to show some love, and I'll and I'll say we as far as Adam McNeil really to show some some love to HBCU uh, folks as well because you know they're, they're, people are doing some great work out, out of these institutions, and uh, it's my job as a as an alum of these institutions to shine the light on those books. And so once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil. I am your host of New Books in African American Studies, and if you like the podcast, please go and subscribe on on all the all the uh, applications and such and go check us out on Stitcher. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Check us out um, also on Spotify and on various platforms. And so once again, folks, I'm your host, Adam Mino of New Books and African American Studies. Over and out.